This is Capitalize Your Finances, the show representing you, a select group of excited, ready, and fired up listeners seeking to potentially maximize your money moves and get after it. We don't settle for generic advice of always and nevers. Our currency is our intellect, and we constantly seek the logical way of likely creating advantages to potentially maximize wealth for our personal and unique situations. This show brings you the step-by-step framework to capitalize your finances in the aspects of your financial situation. And we strive to explore strategies and ideas to potentially help you capitalize on your financial decisions. We are Capitalizers, and this is our show. Welcome back to Capitalize Your Finances. As always, I'm your host, Chris Ray Paniotu, the cap in Capitalize. And today, we have one of my favorite special guests of all time. She is the CEO and chief strategist of Quill Intelligence. She is the author of Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America. One of my favorite economists and financial personalities of all time, the lovely, the intelligent, Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, I am. I am elated. And I know time is precious because you are a highly sought after individual. So we are going to get right into it. But before we dive into the current predicament that our lovely Federal Reserve has today, I wanted to ask a little bit about your career path as you started out. You have a very interesting path. You started out in the private sector. Uh, you were consulting for Savensa, if I'm saying that correctly. You transitioned to Credit Suisse, and then you hopped onto the Dallas Morning News before you landed on the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas. So, what made you want to go from private back? Excuse me, private to public, and then wisely back to private. Well, uh, so when, when I was on Wall Street, I had actually gotten my second master's at night. I was in night school at Columbia Journalism School. Uh, which is kind of unusual when you're, you know, you've got a couple of sales assistants, a partner or two, and mm-hmm. you're running a full book. Uh, but, but there it was, and that was always my retirement plan. I'm, my goal was to retire by the time I was 30 and just write about the financial markets, not be constrained by compliance again as long as I lived. And uh, that retirement, uh, after I signed a non-compete, left Credit Suisse. That retirement lasted about, uh, it felt like a hot five minutes. So. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I gained the attention of Warren Buffett. He, uh, he invited me out to Omaha. I got to hang out with Charlie Munger. That was a blast. Uh, and shortly thereafter, uh, Richard Fisher called. <clears throat> he was a fairly new president at the Dallas Federal Reserve. In a million years, I never thought that I would, I would step into something that was even worse than Wall Street compliance, and that is the security detail at the Federal Reserve Bank. So mm-hmm. um, there I was doing all kinds of sensitivity training, which I'm not... It just doesn't suit me, believe it or not. Um, and uh, for nine years, and let me tell you, by the time I got out and finished serving Uncle Sam, so to speak, I was really ready to go back to being my own boss. And I am happily have been so ever since Richard retired in 2015, and I followed him out. Yes, and we are going to get into all of that. I am moderately jealous uh, that you got to meet Charlie and Warren. Um, that has been one of my lifelong goals. However, the uh, clock is ticking, and by the time we're done recording, one of them could be dead. So um, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to meet Charlie, but I've got hope for Warren. Now, for you, when you were going through these these first three private sector jobs, you were compounding all of this knowledge, and once you hit the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of Dallas, 
what were some of the strongest learned skills that you acquired that you thought could make a serious impact at the Fed? So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned because very few people read all the way back to where I spent my summer in between the first and second years of business school, which was in Caracas, Venezuela, um, at a steel conglomerate that has since been nationalized again. Um, but, but since you brought it up, you know, I learned how very, uh, how very weakening income inequality can be for an economy and how it can set an economy up for things like modern monetary theory, universal basic income, this kind of nihilism with younger people wanting to have things provided for them by the government uh, simply because they feel like somebody's put a ceiling over their head. And even though I was, I was in my mid-20s at the time, I, I was able to look back later in my life and understand how Federal Reserve policy actually served to widen that inequality divide. Um, and, and I witnessed in between being on Wall Street, I witnessed how disproportionately uh, Greenspan's policies at the time favored the 1%. So, you know, the, the firm that I was with, we were bought out by Credit Suisse. That was no fun. Um, they lost a lot of money on that deal. Huge surprise back in uh, back at the, uh, the height of the Internet bubble. But when I was there, you know, we had we had the denizens of private equity walking the halls. That was very unique about DLJ, that we had the people who are now household names on Wall Street. But back then, in the late 1990s, private equity wasn't so well known as it is today. And I was able to see how Fed policy really did benefit those who were the most connected on Wall Street. So you bring it all together and you see how very damaging um, Federal Reserve policy is after you get on the inside and see what a non-productive institution it is and how married it is to models that really do when they play out. They work well in theory, they work terribly in practice, and yet so many of the people making important decisions for the the future of America's long-term prosperity have absolutely no clue They've never had a, you know, they've never held a payroll. They they don't understand that their policies, how their policies, affect uh, small businesses, big businesses, U.S. households, the U.S. government, and that was that was one of my biggest takeaways. And you teed up the question that I had in my head um, perfectly. So once you once you got to the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, how quickly did you realize that something was seriously wrong? Be- as, as there's that huge disconnect between everyday Americans and your public sector employer. So um, you know, one of the reasons that I actually decided to, uh, to join the Federal Reserve uh, was a gal that I nicknamed the, the linoleum lady. And when I was at the Dallas Morning News and I was saying that the housing bubble was going to burst and it was going to be global and systemic in nature, I got a lot of hate news. I had a security contingency. It was kind of a mess. And this Mm -hmm. one woman used to send me these hate notes about, you know, my husband does not want to take this home equity line of credit out. And he's worried that we might be in a housing bubble because he's reading you. And would you just be quiet? Um, And then... A year later or so, right before I joined the Federal Reserve, she wrote me a letter and she was like, I'm so sorry. I should have paid closer attention. My husband lost his job. We did take that home equity line of credit out and we have lost our home to foreclosure. Um, and you know, that was 
that was one of my biggest takeaways as I was joining the Federal Reserve. Um, you know, when I was writing the book Fed Up, you know, I talked about the fact that when I got to the Federal Reserve in, in 2006, my hair was on fire. I'm like, oh my gosh, this thing that I've been predicting is actually happening. I'm watching it play out. Americans are losing their home. We're, we're on our way to north of 10 million foreclosures in America. I get there and it's like nothing was phasing anybody because Bernanke had said that it would be contained and that there would be no problem. I'm like, uh, uh, what if Grand Poobah Bernanke's wrong? You know, look at what's happening on the ground. And um, there was just, there was a certain intellectual snobbery inside the Fed that, you know, that their perception of how the world worked was how the world worked, even though it wasn't. And they just, they don't want to hear outside opinions. And I shouldn't paint with such a broad brush. There's some really great personalities uh, at the Dallas Federal Reserve. I, you know, I, I can name a handful of them, but by and far, uh, you know, kind of your pure play academic PhDs, they, 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 they were just out of touch. And I said to myself, for all the power that they have, what a tragedy that they are as out of touch as they are. Yeah, it, it is super sad. And, and that's one thing I even noticed when, when we started um, this podcast a couple of years ago, because I, I started uh, with getting to know a lot of these academics on the planning side of our industry. And um, to their credit, they, they set the stage for how I've, I've built my business. But uh, there's a there's there is a huge disconnect between the pure academia and then just the black and white emotional intelligence of everyday, uh, really just everything. What is going on? And you know, I don't want to dive too far into like the past because there's a ton of topical stuff I want to ask you today. But it was interesting when I I spoke to a number of people because I was ecstatic to have you on the show. And one common misconception that I think a lot of people have about you is that you discovered the 411 of what was going on in the Fed and you immediately hopped out of there and bailed. But in actuality, <laughs> you didn't take that replunge until I, I believe, if my history is, is uh, accurate, June-ish of 2015. And so my question is purely out of curiosity, was there a reason why the delay was so elongated? Was it, <laughs> was it calculated? Or was there something that my question is not even touching? Well, uh, actually, you're just busted because you haven't read Fed Up, um, which don't get me wrong. Somebody just told me that they'd run out on Amazon. Um, but, uh, but Richard Fisher, uh, what people don't understand about this is uh, I'll make this as succinct as I possibly can. There are 12 Federal Reserve districts all across the country. The Federal Reserve Board that's in Washington, D.C., the best way I can describe it to you is it's a full federal agency. Their email addresses end with .gov. And across the 12 districts, my email address used to end with .org. So we were partially owned by banks in our district. They get paid a dividend, and then the rest of the operating profits of a given district are remitted back to the U.S. Treasury. So we're kind of a quasi-private-public institution. As such, back in 1913, when these 12 districts were envisioned, um, the Federal Reserve District of New York was given a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee. And back then, the, uh, the local economies of Chicago and Cleveland were deemed to be the second two most important, I promise there's an answer here, second two most important Fed districts. And so those two presidents were given a vote on the Federal Open Market Committee every other year 
And that leaves the other nine districts all the way to the 12th district of, of San Francisco. Those presidents get a vote every three years. So during Richard Fisher's voting year, he took me to lunch. He sat me down and he said, I know you want to leave. <laughs> I know that you don't fit into this bureaucratic organization. Yes. Um, I'll give you autonomy within the organization, whatever you want, if you'll stay for four more years through my final voting year, which at that point was still four years down the line. And so that was why I stayed for as long as I did, because people say this woman's a crazy spitfire. What in the world was she doing <laughs> sitting inside of the bureaucracy for nine years? And I'm like, well, I was miserable, but I committed to Richard to give him four more years. And I did. And boy, the minute he was out the door, I was right behind him. Yeah. And it was interesting. So, so to back myself up, did read it. However, it was, it was confusing to me because I've never worked public. So when I, when I read that, I was like, someone as strong-willed and independent as you for like, certainly you could have gotten out earlier, but now that you've explained all that, that makes perfect sense to me. Well, look, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not trying to toot my own horn. Somebody on Twitter once said, you're too self-confident. I'm like, What's the alternative? Should I just cry? <laughs> um, but, but to not to to not sound too self-important, I did really feel like I was trying to make a difference. And those last four years that I stayed, that was when the Fed was making the fatal errors of going to the zero bound, of not just that first emergency tourniquet, we've got to stop the bleeding QE1, but venturing over into QE2 and QE3, which I think were fatally flawed decisions. And, you know, at the time, Richard was fighting the good fight. I was fighting the good fight right alongside him. And I thought I was doing something that was important, even though I knew that I was fighting a losing battle. Yeah. Well, and isn't it interesting that you brought up that and I don't think that you sound like any of those things, okay? Because, of course, I follow you on Twitter. That's how we connected. But it's, it's, the, it's the classic you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Because if you come across as this self-confident, not to go too far off on a tangent, people could perceive you or me as, as arrogant or egotistical or narcissistic. But on the flip side, if you come out basically, maybe not crying, but I don't know, maybe crying, I don't know, um, and, and very soft and, and not convicted in your ideologies, well, then no one's going to ever listen. It, it's a it's a very difficult thing that I wish people of influence, whether it's finance, business, health, wealth, happiness, would talk about because I personally struggle with that a ton. But it, it's neither here nor there. I'm excited to finally get into the topical stuff. Let's now, go. as of this recording, March 30th, 2023, um, I think it's safe to say this past year, we have had a rather volatile financial environment. I also think it is extremely safe to assume that you may have an opinion or two of what the Federal Reserve is doing. Now, I have my own opinion of what I believe Mr. Powell should have done a while ago. But again, this is about you. And so I'm curious, if you were the head of the Federal Reserve, no pressure, what would you have done earlier? And now, given the cards that, that you're currently dealt how would you handle what is going on right now? So um, yeah, I recently published for the public what I called my opus, um, Too Small to Not Fail. I go through in that piece, which I recommend you all read, go to demartinabooth.substack.com. It's there. Um, this is probably the first institutional piece of research I've opened to the public in, I don't know, years. Um, but 
In it, I explain that while I was as perturbed as the next person about the insistence uh, and the persistence of the transitory narrative as it pertained to inflation, um, I do and did understand what was going on at the time because the, the administration was really pitting Jay Powell against Lael Brainerd internally and they were not decisive enough about saying, you know what, Powell, we stand behind you. We have confidence in your leadership. We're just going to immediately renominate you, put you in front of the Senate and get you reconfirmed. That did not happen. So they actually held Jay Powell hostage for months and months and months and months, at which time the Federal Reserve Board in Washington, D.C. was split. It wasn't sure whose camp it needed to be in and as a very sad um, outgrowth of that policy was paralyzed. And you've had, you know, people who've left the Fed since and Randy Quarles being one of them come out and say, had there not been this leadership vacuum at the very top of the Federal Reserve, we would have moved off the transitory narrative much sooner and started normalizing rates much sooner such that Powell didn't have to come out with a wrecking ball in 2022. But the fact of the matter is, they held him hostage and we didn't know who our leader was going to be. And it was very difficult in that kind of a contentious infighting environment to make any cohesive policy decisions as an organization. Sure. Well, and it's, it's interesting you bring all of that up because I, and again, by no means have I, or will I <laughs> work at the Federal Reserve, but being a nerd and a historian, um, I always go back to like the 1982 um, when rates were, you know, I think what was prime was 20 and a half, which is absurd. But looking back on it, you could argue it was one of the better things that has been done because look at the next 20 years after that ish. Mm -hmm. And you could argue the dot com era, et cetera. But there comes a point where you can't make so many excuses. The facts are the facts. But um, from your standpoint, you know, would you have taken like one of those playbooks out of the arsenal and maybe like 2021? Because in my mind, it's almost like, you know, if you have, let's say you have a gash on your arm and you have stitches just all up your forearm. And instead of just rip, ripping them all off and letting the air hit the wound and call it good, it's almost like they're metaphorically just snipping stitch by stitch. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, what's your take on that? Uh, well, I, th I think the last 12 months have been much more of a ripping the band off band-aid off approach but yeah um but you know you asked me a little bit earlier had i been the head of the fed what would i have done and i think um if you look back at the 2012 transcripts when jay powell had only been on the federal reserve board for a few months at that point right he came on june of 2012 in october of that year he was warning that when the time came it was going to be really difficult to extricate policy from the zero bound it was going to be really difficult to shrink the balance sheet and to wean the markets off of that constant source of stimulus uh, from the Fed. And, you know, if, if you're coming at philosophically, if you're coming at a tightening cycle with the viewpoint, now that you're finally unshackled and reconfirmed by the Senate, uh, if you understand that the zero bound was a big mistake and that maybe the next time you're going to be easing, you're going to stop, say, at maybe 2% just to keep things sane and make sure all the bad investing that occurs at the zero bound does not recur. Mm -hmm. 
your next floor is going to be 2%, you better get the Fed funds rate up to at least 5%. So you've got a good 300 basis points of easing in the chamber uh, for the future. And if that's his goal, and I, I, I posit that he does not see any longer the efficacy of the zero bound, then he needed to get rates up much higher. If he really wants for the Fed to no longer be engaged in quantitative easing, he needs to keep shrinking the balance sheet. So these are, there was no right decision to make, by the way. They're like, mm-hmm. if you were the head of the Fed, what would you have done? And I'm like, well, I would have looked at my bad choices and been forced to make one of them. Because that's all it was at this point. I mean, we have more debt than you can shake a stick at. Obviously, we have disruption in the treasury market, um, which is supposed to be risk-free. And it's not trading the way it should be. Forget where interest rates are. There's simply disruption in that in the functionality of that market. And you know, at this point, there's just too much of it out there. And we're finally beginning to suffer the circumstances of having absolutely no discipline. Yeah. Well, and I, I that, that last part, no discipline, is huge. And and speaking of of no discipline, um, one of the things that come to my mind is actually the housing situation. And one thing that has just perplexed the snot out of me, especially over the last couple of years, is for whatever reason, d- despite mortgages doubling, or in some cases more than doubling, at least locally and, and for the most part across the United States, homes from, from my vantage point have either stayed relatively the same price or they've decreased, but it's been slight. It hasn't been just this you know, free fall. And so what are your thoughts on when we shall, quote unquote, meet our maker? Because just from a, a common man's standpoint, I'm looking at it going, these prices are absolutely absurd. And they remain absurd. Um, good friend of mine, Lev Bardowski, publishes every day the Daily Shot. Um, and to his credit, he continually publishes this graph that shows you know, what the home price index looks like, indexed to the same exact trajectory of what incomes look like. Mm-hmm. And the divide between the two has just continued to grow as a factor of time, which is unsustainable on its very face. Um, and you say to yourself, at some point, you know, we're going to have to have housing normalize which, and, and maintain a level of more normal prices for some time to come. But it's obviously taking a very long time to get there. I think that has to do a lot with the fact that investors have swarmed so many markets and there are so many rental properties out there mm-hmm. and there were so many cash transactions that you really did have a, a source of support under the market in so many markets across the country that the, the, the pain of higher interest rates really hasn't trickled into home prices. On top of that, you, know, you had two thirds of the country refinance basically with a mortgage when rates got to their record lows, two, two and a half percent mortgage rates. So when you've got two thirds of the country that's of, of mortgage holders that have refinanced, they're not going anywhere. Right. And, you know, if you hold supply, I mean, hold is a big word, but if supply is kept off the market because people cannot begin to conceive trading homes, getting into a higher mortgage rate because they need to keep that payment where it is, you're going to see a, a floor of sorts put under home prices until things get bad enough. And I think that that point will come really when we're further into the, uh, into the layoff cycle. 
Capitalizers, this episode is sponsored by the best-selling book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. Regardless of where you're at in your financial life, whether you're just beginning to express interest and commitment to your personal finances, at the pinnacle of your career, winding down into retirement, or thinking about your legacy for future generations, this book walks you through every step of the way so you can succeed on your terms and with your own values and passions guiding you. After reading this book, you will officially have Christopher A. Paniotu, the cap in Capitalize, in your back pocket, guiding you in detail through every step of the way so that you can take charge of your finances, not the other way around. Head on over to Amazon.com today and start capitalizing your finances to the fullest with this incredible book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. And now, back to the episode. Well, and it's, yeah, that's, that's a great transition. It, it's interesting you brought up the, the home price index. I, I remember reading a, a piece of research, I think it was like 1929 to 2009 or something. The home index growth is, what, 3 4% depending on where you read. Well, you look from 2009 till today, clearly it's it could be double, easily triple that. And so in my rudimentary mind i'm thinking there's got to be this reversion to the mean but as you know more than anyone the academic and emotional side sometimes they they butt heads and it's just it's one of those things where uh it, it's the it's one of the big questions i can't put my finger on but i know the outcome is not going to be good and um I, i'll tell you i'm not going to ask you this question but one of my least favorite questions i'm sure you get this all the time is where like what do you think the stock market is going to do this year? I, I think it's one of the most useless questions in the history of finance. Uh, it's been un unnecessarily overblown by Wall Street, uh, the media, influencers, if you want to call them that. But what I do think is valuable is looking with your own eyes, listening with your own ears, and in, in talking to everyday people. And so my question for you is this. If you go to the store... The shelves are not quite totally empty, but they're rounding third. Uh, gas is still extremely high relative to pre-COVID. And the various debts, especially student debt, keeps getting kicked down the road. So eventually the piper is going to need to be paid. So how would you handle these predicaments? And where do you think the Fed is succeeding and failing in these endeavors? Huh. Well, um, so, you know... Let's go to student loans for just a minute. Great. Pre-COVID, if you did have a student loan payment, on average, it was $393 a month. That's not an insufficient dollar amount when you consider what your monthly budget is when 15% of U.S. Uh, of, of, of car owners with a car loan have a payment north of $1,000. So 15% car payment north of $1,000 which is just outrageous. And then you tack another $400 a month obligation onto that. And then you're paying a higher rent than you would otherwise. All of a sudden, and this is going to be August 31st, you know, at the latest that these mm -hmm. repayments begin, re, you know, restart. That's like, that's like your budget having a heart attack. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, Fed policy being what it is and you know, being too low for too long, which encourages people to, 
to go into the stock market. Obviously, the Fed bought two thirds of the mortgage backed securities market. I'm sorry, a third, excuse me, a third of the mortgage securities, uh, mortgage backed securities market. So this encouraged a lot of speculation in housing as well. So in a sense of the word, Fed policy has directly fed into people saying, look, the stock market's up. I'll take more on my credit card because my my retirement portfolio is worth that much more. Or look, my home value is up. So I've got more wealth stored up in, in my home so I can buy a nicer car. So it, a lot of perverse decisions are fed by what we call the wealth effect. Mm-hmm. And very few people incorporate into their, you know, their, their mathematical models of what their budget should look like. What happens if that paper wealth ends up being, you know, flammable <laughs> or mm-hmm. inflammable? It can combust all by itself without even having a spark. So um, I, I think that that is, one of the biggest disservices of lower for longer of Fed policy is how it manifests in household psyches Mm -hmm. and the fact that they think that they really do have more than they do. So they go further out on the risk spectrum than they would otherwise. And I'm not just talking about their portfolio holdings. I'm talking about how they approach their budgets and how how far they can squeeze uh, their... I mean, you're hearing about crazy anecdotes about people with security clearance losing their jobs because they can no longer pass, they, they can no longer get, you know, top security clearance uh, because yeah. their credit scores have, because they've taken on so much credit in recent years. That's just insanity. I mean, you have a great job and you're losing it because you can't, you can't keep, you know, top security clearance because you've tacked so much debt onto your household balance sheet. This, this stuff you've got, you're like, you've got to be lying. And I'm like, nope. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Well, and, and also too, um, and I, I, I believe you posted this on Twitter. And when I wrote my book, I, I was researching this because you hear a lot of people say that they live paycheck to paycheck, which I'm not discrediting. But you hear about some of these people that are living paycheck to paycheck. And some of these salaries are 100, 150, 200 grand, 250. And I'm going, mm-hmm. whoa, like, sure, 100 grand's not going to get as far in New York as it is in, say, I don't know, Iowa. But, uh, once you get to like two or two fifty, keeping up with the Joneses, that that is a thing, and it, it is. It's very startling to see how people keep climbing, and, and in our industry, you're even seeing security-backed line of credits, really for no reason other than people are just growing and growing. So eventually, that piper's going to need to get paid. You mentioned August thirty first. I, I have to go back to this. So that is at the latest. When they're saying basically the the gig is up on the student loan, do you actually think that's going to keep getting kicked down the road? No, no. I think the Supreme Court might come in very easily and pull the plug sooner. So um, the clock starts ticking. Um, There's a 60-day clock that starts ticking the minute that the Supreme Court hands its decision down. So if that was to happen on April the 1st, uh, then you would actually have payments resume on June the 1st. So, and, and I think that most people, and there's obviously much more awareness than there was uh, prior to the Republicans gaining the House of Representatives, because now it's not as easy to just sweep things under the carpet because you've got both parties of Congress. It's just in a housekeeping administrative way, you just can't do as much as you did before when you had the House and the Senate. So, uh, no, I, I think that August the 31st is the outside date and that people who know that it that 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 these payments are going to be resurfacing they need to be planning for it today yeah 
Yeah, well, and it's it's crazy because, spoiler alert, I don't think most are. Um, <laughs> so would you... S- oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm laughing. I'm just... I'm, I'm yeah, agreeing. Yeah, yeah. I'm agreeing. Yeah. It's, it's just... It's very, very sad. It's sad and it's scary and, um, you know, obviously I care about the people I talk to and all of that. And I've talked to my counselor about it where it's like, you see the train coming and you want to just scream at everyone. And even though I've got a, a loud mouth, it, it the... It's not loud enough. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes there's just, there's only so much you, you can do. Um, would you say that then the Federal Reserve, as of right now, is providing a net positive or net negative to the current uh, economic situation? Uh, well, given right now, for example, uh, you know, your average household, if they were sitting on a three or 4% mortgage, um, you know, if, yeah. if borrowing rates were a lot lower, they might be able to get budgetary relief by, by looking to do a cash out refinancing. That's not happening. Um, so, and that's why we say that policy is quote unquote restrictive. Uh, and it is. That being said, you know, I fully advocate for Jay Powell seeing this through mm-hmm. and having the latitude to not go back to the zero bound. You know, saying, you know, enough with quantitative easing, uh, you know, it's, it's no longer a tool in the toolbox. It didn't work before and it got us into a lot of trouble. So, uh, again, because there are no good choices, we just have our choice of bad choices to make. You know, I advocate for taking our lumps as opposed to, you know, if you want to take it to the extreme. And this is what I wrote about with too small to not fail. If you take it to the extreme, I ask the rhetorical question, if this is going to if the U.S. economy, the largest in the world, can only subsist at the zero bound with quantitative easing going full tilt in the background and monetizing every last penny of Treasury debt, then there's absolutely no reason to even have a Federal Reserve because that's that's mechanistic. You don't need people deciding to keep interest rates slammed at zero. You don't need anybody to do that. The Treasury can do that. The Treasury can buy back its own. And if we're going to turn into a banana republic, let's just do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting because you, you and you and I hear both sides of, of the aisle every time. People either love Powell, they can't stand him. Right uh, now, thing I, right, right now, uh, I'm like in the one percent minority. The world hates Powell right now. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting too because even someone that that does just despise uh, any Federal Reserve chair, like I still want them to come out of this on a positive because that means it's going to help everyone. Sure. Um, and that's something that's just uberly perplexing. I, I, I want to switch gears a little bit just because I, of course, I want to be respectful of your time. And I actually wanted to transition a little bit to chat GBT. Now, our listeners know that I am not just like this uberly hip and trendy guy, really in general, but specifically on the investment and planning side, because eventually that story is not going to end well. However, uh, I have personally given it a try and it's it's actually been mind-blowingly beneficial for podcasting, emailing, um, posting. But what I can't seem to figure out is the the one degree of separation from the usage to direct profitability. And so without giving specific investment advice, how do you think ChatGBT will change the world of business? So the best way that I can describe kind of the, the the user ability, 
the the importance of the of this moment, if you will, because this is a moment. It's a mm-hmm. moment when you can ask an, an app to uh, to decipher uh, a rates trader speaking in gobbledygook about you know how many basis points, standard deviations, this contract is trading here, and all in acronyms and abbreviations, and have something disentangle all of that. Um, mm-hmm. My best description right now of Chat ChatGPT and why it is so disruptive is because it strips away the need to really have a traditional analyst per se. It is an ex- it, it, it explains things. It, it's explanative. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, however, think. And I think that that's the difference. It's extraordinarily powerful. I mean extraordinarily powerful because it can take extremely complex subjects and break them down. And, you know, I I was saying to somebody earlier, uh, you know, the difference between me asking an analyst to describe something as simply as possible and asking ChatGPT to do that is ChatGPT is not going to try and look smart while they do it. Uh And ChatGPT is going to be kind of agnostic and take there's no ego whereas when you ask a human being to to do something they might want to show off and they might use words that they wouldn't otherwise because their name is on it and i think that that is a huge difference is that you do get a level at least on an analytical basis of objectivity that is very difficult to get from human beings and in that sense i really do see this as being a, a disruptive force in the labor market, you can just tell this thing to do the, just just to, to be a paralegal, mm-hmm. to, I mean, yeah. to be an accountant, to, to be, yeah. you know, lower management in finance, because it can, it, it can do duties. It can mm-hmm. perform duties. What yeah. it can't do is, is strategize. And yes. thank God. Because... <laughs> Because I have a payroll and I have employees and we publish 13 times a week and, uh, and I need to be of use or I can just go off and retire somewhere. Not, no, I can't retire. I'm on the no retire plan with four kids. But, um, <laughs> but it, what it can't do is take the place of somebody who is trying to, and it tells you, by the way, I am not predictive. I am not a predictive function. Um, I can give you scenario analyses, which any analyst can do, but um, and I, I think that that right now is the distinguishing characteristic. Who's to say that in five or ten years, or for well, time is compressed in one year, that it doesn't have that same ability? In which case, well, we can just all go retire. Yeah, well, and it, it's it is it's a mind blowing software, and I <laughs> I will say this: I wish I had it in like high school or college because uh-huh. you could say. I think the first time I even used it, I said, uh, write an AP U.S. history paper on the Civil War to get me a B plus. And it did it. And then I said, okay, make it an A. And then it just immediately redid it in real time. My wife and I are going, oh my God, this is awesome. Um, and, And on a business side, to your point, I'm thankful it's not strategizing. I don't know if you saw... I think it was this morning, Elon Musk even came out and basically said, hey, we need to pause the progression of AI intelligence um, because it's, it's getting 
exponentially stronger than we may or may not want it to be. But mm -hmm. um, it, it's 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 neither here nor there. My my last question for you before we let you ride off into the sunset of your day um, is actually regarding your own situation. So you have this plethora of experience at your fingertips, and with working in these various private sectors, pre-Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, and now you're back on your own, conquering the world. What have been some of the most valuable strategies and insights that you have gained in order to capitalize on your finances? So I think um, one of the hardest, uh, one of the most difficult challenges that I faced after I left the Fed, and especially after the cathartic experience of writing Fed Up, an insider's take on why the Federal Reserve is bad for America, um, was having too little appreciation for the for some for some mantras that are mantras because they make sense kind of like don't fight the fed <laughs> now when you've been inside the sausage factory you know you come out and you're like okay i'm a total vegan now i never want and and when you see the damage that fed policy does don't get me wrong. no that, that was a metaphor i'm a total carnivore um yeah. but when you see the damage that that, that policy has done you want to fight against it yeah and it was the episode of, of 2017 when the VIX closed south of 10. So when the VIX closed in single digits 52 times in one trading year, when global quantitative easing was running at a 2.1 or $2.2 trillion annual rate, again, globally. And I've, I've learned that quantitative easing is fungible across currencies. Mm. Um, and then as you watch the spigot slowly close and we flip to 2018 and all of a sudden global quantitative easing goes from being liquid to illiquid slowly, mm. that's when I learned in real time what don't fight the Fed means. So what don't fight the Fed means to me at least is if they are net providers of liquidity. There's absolutely nothing you can do to prevent markets from, from, getting, from, from getting higher highs mm -hmm. because liquidity is the lifeblood of the financial markets, especially when you're at the zero bound. And what yes. I saw in 2018, because we all experienced it, we experienced Volmageddon. We experienced Jay Powell's first year in office when he tried really hard to be the person then he is now and failed miserably because Japanese banks had 40% of their loan books in, in U.S. CLOs. And he was told in December of 2018, after attempting to slowly normalize interest rates, 25 basis points at a time, very very painstakingly and, 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 you know, very timidly doing quantitative tightening. And that blew up on him. Mm -hmm. And systemic risk was kind of staring at him. And I think that that really did leave its mark on his way of thinking because he was so methodical and so slow about it. And yet he still had to pull all the way back and pivot after the bloodbath that we saw Christmas Eve of 2018. But in the background, what was working against him was that global liquidity had turned negative. So even here we are today, you know, we're waiting for a Kuroda. These are the last few days of, of Kuroda being the head of the Bank of Japan. We know that his successor is going to come in and make an attempt after, what, 15 years of trying to normalize policy. 
And the reason I bring that specifically up is because that means that we're at another moment in global financial market history. It looks like the People's Bank of China is kind of on its last few hurrahs of trying to inject stimulus. And so are we at the precipice once again of turning negative on a global level when it comes to liquidity being injected into the markets? Because it is the People's Bank of China and the Bank of Japan that have acted as offsetting factors as the Fed has shrunk its balance sheet, as Janet Yellen has had to push the economy into emergency measures. So she's been able to push liquidity into the market by reducing the nation's checking account below its minimum balance that it has to hold by law. So there's been a lot of offsetting factors, but it appears to be that this process is coming to an end again. And, you know, I look back to this period of March to May of 2008, when Bear Stearns fell March 17, 2008. The next day, the Federal Reserve opened up the discount window to securities dealers, and the market went nuts. The S&P rose 15% in two months' time mm-hmm. uh, until May the 19th of 2008, because they said, you know what, they've come up with a new mousetrap. They're going to be able to provide the liquidity that the market needs. Everything's going to be just fine. And then it turned out it wasn't enough. There were solvency issues. There were counterparty. There was counterparty risk in the system. Kind of like today, we have commercial real estate. We have auto loans. We have issues mm-hmm. with underlying collateral in the system that are going to go beyond what the Fed is doing right now with its own liquidity measures. There will be more tests out into the future against a backdrop dot dot dot. Yes. Of depleting liquidity <laughs> on a net net global basis. So we have to be prepared for what's to come. And as an investor, I had to stop fighting global liquidity being positive. I'm not surprised that the stock market's up right now. Mm-hmm. But that is, as I said, very slowly coming to an end. And we have to be cognizant of the liquidity backdrop at all times. And that's another way of saying don't fight the Fed. And right now, I think a lot of people in the markets are fighting the Fed and fighting the Fed hard in the sense that they keep trying to press a Powell pivot. And every time they do, Powell sits back very patiently and he talks the markets out of their idealistic, we're going to see a pivot into the next rate hike. Mm. Yeah, that comes down to the uh, whole idea of um, actions speak louder than words, although if you're really good with your words, they can kind of you know, smoke and mirror the actions. And my new motto is results speak louder than everything. And so we're going to see how these results shake out. So Danielle, thank you so much for coming on. Before we let you go, where can capitalizers go to best support you? So, um, you know, I'm going to toot my horn here for a minute. We we publish, um, you know, our, our kind of everyday retail product, which is a misnomer because I'm told that its institutional caliber of research is 59 whole dollars a month. Uh, and that's every trading day of the week. So come to demartinobooth.substack.com. It's a new platform for me. And uh, and give give the research a test drive because you will be so informed again as you started introducing me, no more compliance. (laughs) I don't have anybody's strictures to deal with. My research is truly independent. There is no agenda and I'm not selling you anything. And I think that having unbiased guidance, especially these days when everybody's selling something, 
when we're at really critical junctures uh, in the global economy, in the U.S. economy, in U.S. markets, in the U.S. banking system. So I think having unbiased research is really important. And if it's not me, then find somebody who's just as good as me. Doesn't exist. Um, no, okay. There was that self-important thing. But demartinobooth.substack.com. And if you don't follow me on Twitter, then wake up at demartinobooth. Yes, absolutely. And by the way, that fact that you are incredible is completely unbiased. And with that, capitalizers that are continuing to listen in, as always, thank you so much for supporting one of the fastest growing financial podcasts in the country, Capitalize Your Finances. You know the drill by now. If you have any questions about today's episode, you can either give us a call at 253-214-3050 or shoot me an email, chris at capitalizeyourfinances.com. As always, I would be more than willing to answer any questions, comments, or excitement that you have sending our way. As always, I'm your host, Chris Ray Paniotu, The Cap and Capitalize. And until next time, keep capitalizing. Take care. The information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice and is not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. You should always seek counsel of the appropriate advisor prior to making any investment decision. All investments are subject to risk, including the loss of principal. This material was gathered from sources believed to be reliable. However, its accuracy cannot be guaranteed. Examples cited are hypothetical, are for illustrative purposes only, are not guaranteed, and subject to potential federal and state law amendments. There is no guarantee that you will achieve the results discussed or illustrated. The CBOE Volatility Index, or VIX, was created by the Chicago Board Options Exchange, CBOE and is a real-time market index that represents the market's expectation of 30-day forward-looking volatility. Derived from the price inputs of the S&P 500 index options, it provides a measure of market risk and investor sentiments. S&P 500 index is an unmanaged index and includes a representative sample of large-cap U.S. companies in leading industries. An investment may not be made directly in an index. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and securities and advisory services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Capitalize Your Finances, a separate entity from LPL Financial. Danielle DiMartino Booth and any other individual or company mentioned in this podcast are not affiliated with Capitalize Your Finances or LPL Financial.